episode 242, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Today, I speak with Marty McCary, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with Dr. Marty McCary about his new book, which is entitled The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. I could not recommend this book more highly. It's a page turner for hospital execs trying to do the right thing, employers trying to do right by their employees, insurance carriers looking for better ways to actually drive healthcare value, and doctors and nurses who are feeling burnout because they see their organizations demanding them to do things misaligned with their mission to do the best they can by patients. Dr. McCary tells me in this interview that his intent with this book was to shine light on some of the issues, mainly around the price we as patients, taxpayers, employers, basically all of us, pay. Dr. McCary says that understanding the situation is the first step toward navigating and redressing it. The price we pay gives multiple examples of egregious pricing. I'm going to split these examples into two categories. First, your basic price gouging, including surprise billing and what amounts to predatory pricing done at scale. The second category are high total prices because the services rendered were some shade of unnecessary. So high prices based on the price of the unit and then high prices based on the number of units delivered. Dr. McCary and I talk about both challenges today. We also talk about the multiple instances where doctors and nurses and others are doing the right thing and really working hard to correct issues. Their efforts are glimmers of hope for all of us working hard to do right by patients. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Marty McCary, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Great to be with you, Stacey. So let's talk about your new book, which is called The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. And the book gives multiple examples of egregious pricing. Are we talking about outliers here or is this pervasive? Most doctors and hospitals try to do the right thing and serve their communities. But if there's been one trend in the last five to 10 years, it's been the massive growth of surprise bills, of overinflated bills. You know, the reason these bills are often overinflated, Stacey, is that hospitals have said, we just need negotiating leverage with insurance companies. So we want to give them a big discount for their customers. By inflating the prices, the discounts look big. And so it's been this game. It's been an insider game. And many times when we've presented these big bills back to hospital CEOs, they'll often tell us and the advocacy group that I'm working with, the students with Restoring Medicine, they'll often tell us, look, nobody pays those bills. No, nobody is responsible for paying these highly marked up bills. So we basically took them to task and said, OK, let's do some formal research, just as we do formal cancer research and public health research. And let's ask the question, are Americans responsible for paying these marked up sticker price bills? And the reality is a ton of people are being shaken down for these bills, not just the uninsured, but those receiving out-of-network care, even at in-network facilities, those with high deductibles. You look at most Americans, they have less than $400 of cash in savings to their name. 
So when they get hit with a $6,000 bill or even a $4,000 bill, it can be catastrophic to that family. So I, in the book, The Price We Pay, decided to take two years, tour the United States and talk to every stakeholder in healthcare, drug companies, middlemen, hospital executives, nurses, doctors, frontline people, and patients. And what I learned is that a lot of people in healthcare are doing very well. We have tens of thousands of new millionaires that have been created who are non-patient facing in healthcare. And that's okay. We need good managers. But the damage has really been done to the hardworking American family or individual that has a job, has insurance, but is really getting screwed by the money games right now. So I don't know if you saw the movie, The Big Short. Yep. I, I mean, I don't know what you thought of that. I loved that movie. I just thought it broke down a complex subject so well and made it entertaining. That's what I wanted to do with the book, The Price We Pay. I wanted to explain the complexities of the business of medicine so any person could understand exactly how it works. So it's not a nebulous cloud because that cloud was part of the mirage of the banking industry. That cloud is one of the reasons why the money games in the banking industry continued to go on with very little public accountability because the argument was, look, these are very complex banking instruments and, and systems. You have to leave it to us, the experts. Well, guess what? It wasn't that complicated. They were spending our money, spending money they didn't have. They were spending borrowed money. Anybody can understand it. And that movie, The Big Short, explained it. And the same thing needs to be done with healthcare today. There are money games. If you break it down to any person, it doesn't matter what political party they are, whether or not they work in healthcare or outside, whether or not they're a hospital CEO or they're a mechanic taking care of the ambulances, they will tell you this is not right. And I think doctors and nurses have suspected for a long time, our system was never intended to be this predatory, to have this much price gouging, to have this many money games in the system. And, you know, the subject can be very depressing. So what I did is to try to really identify all the bright spots, all the positives, all the innovators, all the disruptors that are really challenging the status quo and succeeding because of it, because there's tremendous demand, I believe, right now for honesty in healthcare. Personally, I found the book a page turner. There's so many very impactful and very interesting examples. But what you said about the big short drawing that parallel really strikes a chord because, as many have said, healthcare is very not transparent, the opposite of. And as any number of behavioral economists, including Daniel Kahneman, have said, you know, under the cover of darkness, people do things which they might not do if people could see into the closed door meeting, which there are gag clauses in certain cases to even prevent that complexity from being revealed. And I think one of the quotes from the book, which really struck home with me relative to predatory pricing, is the billing clerk who said, you know, in quotes, we can charge someone out of network as much as we want. The law says we can. I tried to identify in the book the price we pay, both the really positive stories and the egregious stories. And so there are hospitals that I highlight that are doing a terrific job in their communities with fair billing practices and are very forgiving and merciful to their patients. And then we saw the opposite, right? We saw hospitals doing price gouging routinely, predatory billing, sort of gotcha, small print, 
asking patients to sign their financial life away when they come in sick to the emergency room. Look, hospitals were created in America as a safe haven for the sick and injured. Okay, many were established with a charter founded by churches with a charter to serve anyone regardless of, quote unquote, their race, creed or ability to pay. This is the great heritage of medicine. Okay, this is what every doc and nurse should be proud of. We come from this lineage of taking care of people when they need us. And look at the people applying for the Johns Hopkins Medical School or any medical school. They're bright and creative and altruistic, and they want to help people, right? This is the incredible heritage of medicine. And unfortunately, that public trust is now being eroded by predatory pricing and unfair billing practices. And it's a disgrace. It's an anathema. It's a disgrace. And we found hospitals that routinely sue patients in one town that the small hospital had sued half the town. I mean, healthcare was never designed to be that predatory and to take advantage of people. I believe it's basically taking advantage of people when they're sick and vulnerable. Exactly what you just said, these kind of bad eggs that are spoiling the barrel to mix metaphors there. (laughs) The Edelman Trust Barometer showed the trust in hospitals nosediving seven points this year. And it might very well be because of the spotlight that's being put on some of these bad practices from hospitals. But, you know, something that you just said struck me. Every time anybody goes to an ER or is admitted to a hospital or even just goes to the doctor, there is that ubiquitous form that you're asked to sign. So if I am a doctor or a nurse or someone in administration, and I know that's going on at my hospital or practice or clinic, is there anything that I can do? It just feels like a tough situation to change at an individual level. What's your advice? Look, I think we in healthcare need to speak up about this problem. I'm a surgeon. I get it. I believe doctors and hospitals need to be paid for their work. But I've got Some colleagues who tell me, Marty, why are you working on all this stuff about hospital billing practices and the appropriateness of medical care? Don't you love being a surgeon? I mean, isn't that enough? And I tell them, look, I love being a surgeon, but a quarter of the public doesn't trust us right now. A quarter of Americans don't pick up their prescription for fear of the price of the drug. A quarter of Americans are worried about putting food on their table when they get a medical bill or when they seek medical care. If this is a barrier, to getting people quality medical care, it doesn't matter if you cured cancer. If you can't give people that cure, if you can't deliver those state-of-the-art therapies, that public trust having been eroded is the frontier of delivering high-quality medical care in the United States. And for doctors, for nurse managers, for leaders, for hospital administrators who hear about this type of stuff and they say, this is a disgrace, this is an outrage, this is wrong, this is not who we are as a medical profession, talk to your hospital leaders, community, people in the, in the you know concerned citizens. Find out who's on your hospital board and have a civil conversation with them. I, I get emails all the time of people who got an egregious medical bill. And I tell them, have a conversation with your hospital. You shouldn't have to be fighting with some call center representative that's out of town about a medical bill. These should be civil conversations. That's how any accountable business would work. I'm on the the board of a large hospital system. The people on the board are often unaware of what's happening with the hospital's billing practices or with issues of appropriateness. Let them know. I mean, they are sort of front people or liaisons 
to the community. So I say get to the people who are on the boards and the leadership and just tell them in a very polite way, this patient showed up for an emergency room visit, was charged $10,000. It seems egregious. Now the patient is being sued or they're being sent to collections or their FICA score is getting destroyed. This doesn't seem to be consistent with the hospital's mission statement. And can you look into this? If we all speak up, we can make changes. And in the book, The Price We Pay, I highlight many of the positives that are happening right now. And on the website, restoringmedicine.org, we put some tools for patients on both how to fight their medical bills, but also how to enact social change, right? We shouldn't be playing whack-a-mole with high bills. We should be talking about an honest and fair billing system. Yeah, there's a quote from Dr. Keith Smith from Oklahoma that is in The Price We Pay. It's, how can we take an oath to treat a patient and then allow their lives to be ruined financially? And I thought that summed it up very well. If I'm on the board or I am an administrator in a hospital, what's your advice to me? I may or may not know that this is going on. Let's say I discover that in certain cases it is. How can I make myself accessible or how do I enable the physicians or the PCPs in the community who might be realizing that their patients are in this situation? So I think these civil conversations are powerful. And believe it or not, most leaders in healthcare have no idea how bad things are and how ugly it looks on the ground. I'll meet hospital leaders that will give me a very rosy picture of how lenient they are and how generous with financial aid they can be, and how they work with individuals, and a story of somebody where they gave them free care, and it sounds so rosy. And then what I'll find on the ground is an intense and relentless pursuit of patients to pay bills that they cannot afford, that are marked up bills, they're unfair bills, and sometimes they're for services that should have never been rendered, or for services that represent complications that were avoidable. And so when we have these conversations, they're powerful. You know, if I can, um, you know, share something very personal, my own employer, Johns Hopkins Hospital, was one of the hospitals found to be suing patients. Now, uh, it blew up. And I can tell you, the leaders of the hospital were, the vast majority had no idea this was happening. When we've gone to hospitals in the United States, and Hopkins had cases of suing some people. But I'll tell you, we found cases in the United States where a hospital in Virginia, a hospital in New Mexico, sue the crap out of people. Okay, they're suing the crap out of people. And they've sued in one town 20,000 patients. The town only has 28,000 people in it by census data. It's horrifying. <laughs> right. And we asked the doctors, are you aware that the patients you're treating are getting sued in court to have their paycheck garnished for life almost sometimes? I mean, if you have a $12,000 bill, how long does it take to garnish a minimum wage paycheck to get that paid off? I mean, it takes sometimes the rest of the person's life for a bill that's marked up four or five times what Medicare would pay for the same thing or what a commercial payer would pay. It's not right. So when we talk to the doctors, they have no idea and they're outraged. When we talk to the hospital leaders, many times they have no idea and many times they're outraged. So these conversations are powerful. I believe that billing quality should be a measure of medical quality. In other words, a hospital, a provider group should be evaluated not just by their medical complication rate, 
but by their billing complication rate. Financial toxicity is a medical complication. And we've talked to US News and World Report. My team has talked with CMS and their five-star rating system, health grades, you name it. Medical billing quality is medical quality. And we need to start evaluating hospitals so we have some accountability. Most hospitals do the right thing. And I think when we can appeal to the best in people, look, everybody who's in healthcare went into healthcare out of a deep sense of compassion. Hospital administrators, business leaders, doctors, nurses, physical therapists, you name it. We all went into medicine to help people in some way. And I think when we can show how ugly things are on the ground right now, how bad the public trust has been eroded by predatory billing and price gouging, how dishonest the practice can be of providing out-of-network care at in-network hospitals on an elective, non-urgent basis without ever telling a patient, without giving them any choices. Look, we can do better. We can restore honesty in healthcare, and I think that's really our great heritage. Given that CEOs tend to, and doctors and and leaders at provider organizations and board members are unaware of what's going on, how is this happening? Is it some rogue billing clerk or like the finance department just went off the rails? Like, how does this happen unbeknownst to leadership? Yeah, so oftentimes the billing practices and the collection strategies fall under the CFO. And there's oftentimes one or two layers of outsourcing this to other agencies or companies or law firms. Now, language matters, Stacey. So when if you're at a hospital and your CFO tells you that we recovered 23% of our bad debt, you think, oh, okay, that's a good report. 23% above average for bad debt collection. When you call it bad debt, I believe we're mischaracterizing what it is. Okay, these are egregious, unfair, marked up bills, and the billing practices can be predatory and shaking people down is inconsistent with the mission of medicine. So look, if you have plastic surgery and you're wealthy, you can go shake that patient down as much as you want, okay? There should be a contract in place where they understood the price, of the plastic surgery, and you can go after them. You can take them to court, for all I'm concerned. But these are low-income working people that don't qualify for government or local financial aid programs. They've done nothing wrong. Their deductibles are through the roof because healthcare costs have spiraled out of control. Insurance companies manage high costs by simply jacking up the deductible. And these are well-meaning people who have saved $2,500 so their son can go to college. And they get hit with these bills. So I'm on a hospital board, and I can tell you, I don't think anyone on the board knows how aggressive the hospital is with collecting bills. I think if we, instead of calling it bad debt, call it uh, price gouging. Instead of calling it hospitals using legal action to collect bad debt, why don't we call it predatory billing? Instead of calling it hospitals recovering uncompensated care, why don't we call it patients being asked to pay prices for prices that were not disclosed to the patient at the point of care for non-urgent care? There's, I literally hear stories of individuals begging the doctors in the hospitals and the leaders and the administrator on call, please, I want to know the price of this elective heart surgery. And they, it is a massive runaround. It's a circus. 
I don't think we got bad people who are diabolical and trying to hide the price. I just think hospitals have been burdened with regulatory requirements and other things where they've been busy and they have not had the time, energy, and resources to actually itemize services. I mean, it's pretty clear. Hospitals have, instead of, say, in most businesses, itemize the cost of an individual service, they will actually, hospitals will just look at total revenue and total expenses and try hard to stay on top. But we need to know exactly how much a service and infusion therapy and operation cost, and we need to price that fairly. And what I love about Keith Smith in Oklahoma is he charges the same amount, regardless if you're paying out of pocket or if you're an insurance company paying one fair and honest price. It's not the lowest price, but it's a pretty darn good price, and it's fair and it's honest, and it is eliminating that middleman repricing industry. Think about all the money we spend hounding people for payments and fighting insurance companies on the hospital side and insurance companies fighting hospitals on pre-authorizations and peer-to-peer approvals. This is the stuff that drives us doctors nuts. I mean, the pre-authorization, the peer-to-peer, it's like, let us just do our job. You know, I don't believe doctors are lazy people. We just don't want to spend our time on things that don't matter. And it's like, let us take care of patients. So some of these hospitals that have been egregious in their predatory billing and price gouging, shaking people down in court, trying to garnish their wages to the point where half the town has been sued. These are low-income working Americans have been sued to have their paychecks garnished by their local community nonprofit hospital. I'll go in there with my advocacy group and we will offer to provide free representation to the patients getting sued. I mean, this Friday, we've got 340 patients lined up at the docket where the hospital is suing them to have their wages garnished. And we're going to go in there and we're going to defend them. Now, I can tell you every time a patient agrees to let me put my name on the case as the medical expert pro bono, every time that hospital sees Marty McCary on the case, they cancel the bill. Every bill is getting canceled. Why? Because I think they know it's egregious. These are egregious bills. They're not fair. And people are hungry for honesty in healthcare right now. I would suspect that you're right, because if they felt that the only reason that they would cancel the bill is that they didn't want the public relations. And why wouldn't they want the public relations is because they didn't want the bill to be made public. Why wouldn't they want the bill to be made public? Because there's a problem with it. <laughs> Do you like my deductive reasoning there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately many times they're forgiving these bills just out of a PR move and they give us some corporate speak, you know, statement. And I've put these statements and their responses and my conversations with the hospital CEOs in the book, The Price We Pay. But um, what we're seeing right now is this sort of mass outrage that's going on in the general public. We've asked hospitals to take a code of ethics pledge, and we've got it on the website, restoringmedicine.org, asking them to agree to fair billing practices. There are certain things hospitals can do to be very fair. And look, Hospitals will tell you they're about they're on the brink of going out of business. That's true of some of the rural access hospitals. But Axios, the um, media firm, just completed a study showing based on early 2019 data, large hospitals are on track for the largest profit margin in their history, 5.1%. So basically, the take home message is large hospitals are crushing it financially, while small hospitals are closing. Rural hospitals are closing. They're not collecting 
billions of dollars from suing patients, garnishing their paychecks. Okay, these are hardworking Americans. Number one people getting sued in the state of Virginia, where we completed a large study that's come out in one of the medical journals, Walmart employees. They're the number one people that are sued by Virginia hospitals. Uh, number two, food service workers. Number three, U.S. postal workers. Are these wealthy Americans? No, these are people who are working hard for their paycheck. Okay, they have health insurance. They've done nothing irresponsible by going without health insurance. Number four, hospital workers. Hospitals suing the very nurses and housekeepers and, and individuals who work at their hospital have committed their lives to taking care of people. And so this ironic. is what they do with this care. I mean, it's a disgrace. That being said, let's talk about employers for a sec, because obviously if your workers' wages are getting garnished by the local hospital at scale, that is knowable. You can see the wages getting garnished. Obviously, employers do have a stake in this. Is there any advice that you would have for employers, many of whom listen here? Should they be teaming up with any of your advocacy groups or what's your advice to them? First of all, I love employers right now in healthcare. They are the bright spot. And overall, I'm very optimistic about the future of healthcare because we're seeing a redesign of care, a return to honesty by people like Keith Smith in Oklahoma and Columbus Community Hospital in Nebraska and many of these great players. And employers are smart enough to say, hey, we want to work with the honest hospitals, not just the ones that advertise at the NFL games. Like we can see through this stuff and we see the egregious pricing that's going on. And we want people that we're willing to pay for quality, but we want honest and fair pricing. And we want to be able to see how you're doing in terms of quality. And billing quality is medical quality. And employers are seeing that. So we've talked to Walmart. We've told them, hey, your employees are getting sued like crazy in the state of Virginia. Here's the data. My research team from Johns Hopkins has done the research on this. We've got the studies. Here's the data from the state of Virginia. Walmart employees are the number one employees that get sued and have their wages garnished. Will you help us? Right? Employers have tremendous clout in healthcare. Tremendous. Not only do they serve on a lot of the boards of hospitals, but once they find out about things, when they learn about things, they get involved. And so we're seeing that now with employers. So all those employers out there gosh, you guys are the future. Uh, you guys are driving competition in local marketplaces. And we just need good metrics, just like the food industry developed food labels. Uh, the industry initially fought food labels, the food industry, saying that, you know, this companies are going to close, we're going to have food shortages, people are going to be laid off, all of this gloom and doom. When food labels were introduced as a national transparency policy, None of it happened. It didn't happen. What we got was an incredibly informed consumer. And that's what we see in healthcare with employers. Moving on to the second kind of category of overpricing, if you will, and that is overtreatment or wasteful treatment that might be charged for at a very high price. As you said in the book, 21% of care might be considered unnecessary. And then we have the whole, as you termed it, which I loved, screening industrial complex, which kind of furthers that end. Do you want to talk about the situation there and how this compounds the earlier part of our conversation? 
Yeah, there's two problems in the issue of the appropriateness of medical care. One is undertreatment, and the other is overtreatment. But right now in America today, by far, the number one problem we face at epidemic proportion is overtreatment. Both are problems. Let me give you a statistic, Stacey. Ten years ago, we physicians in the United States prescribed 2.4 billion prescriptions. Last year, it hit 5 billion. Did disease double in the last 10 years? No, we have a crisis of appropriateness. Isn't the opioid crisis one manifestation of the crisis of appropriateness? We have patients getting overpriced bills for services they didn't even need. 21% of all medical care is unnecessary in that statistic you quoted. And that was from a survey of U.S. physicians that we published in a Johns Hopkins study surveying 2,100 physicians across the United States in all specialties, a random sampling, simply asking them, what percent of medical care, in your opinion, is unnecessary? When you have people in the industry telling you that 21% of the stuff going on is unnecessary, that's a wake-up call. That's a signal. That's a red flag that the number one way to reduce the drug pricing problem in the United States is to stop taking drugs you shouldn't be on. The number one way to reduce healthcare costs in the United States is to reduce unnecessary healthcare. The number one way to re reduce the cost of back surgery is to reduce unnecessary back surgery. And what I'm so excited about, one of the reasons I'm so optimistic about the future of healthcare in doing the research for the book, The Price We Pay, is that a whole generation of doctors are saying, hey, wait a minute, this system is broken. Burnout rates are at an all-time high. Not because we're busy. We doctors like to be busy. It's because of this treadmill that we're on where we're forced to see patients in 10 minutes and people come in demanding a prescription they don't need or a test they don't need. And we're seeing a generation of doctors, mostly led by these millennial doctors and the new generation, that are saying, can we talk about the crisis of appropriateness in medicine? Can we look at how the perverse incentives have created this monster complex? Can we talk about how to treat gut problems with healthy foods? Can we treat back pain with yoga? Can we treat loneliness with community? We're seeing this incredible movement to ask, how can we talk about the root drivers of poor health instead of just this reactionary treatment complex that we've been conditioned to recognize from our medical education? Is a way to accelerate that. So if I am a lone doctor who's listening to this podcast and I have embraced the mission and I see that my organization is not aligned with my mission, my mission is to improve patient outcomes and to reduce the harm that is caused by taking unnecessary medications or getting tests or treatments, there's always a risk of, of everything. So the more unnecessary treatments that get piled on, the more risk that you're actually going to have an adverse reaction to the medicine that'll kill you, right? <laughs> Is there a way for me to accelerate this other than talking to my leadership? Or, or does it all boil down to get involved at the higher levels of any of the organization and, and try to fix this from the inside? Well, there's a, an incredible groundswell of physicians and nurses who are saying, let's be a part of a grassroots movement to just scrap the current healthcare system and start from scratch. Now, these are largely driven by primary care physicians 
And they're basically saying, look, this model of 10, 15 minute visits and cramming all these patients in, this is for the birds. We don't like it. Doesn't make sense. Not good for patients. This is not how we ever, you know, intended to practice medicine. So they're educating themselves now on food as medicine and what we call the holistic treatment of lifestyle diseases. I'm not talking about all the quack therapy. I'm talking about stuff that works. We're talking about, you know, addressing what are real problems. One of the most exciting innovators I came across in doing the research for the book, The Price We Pay, was the so-called, what I call relationship-based clinics. It got that name early when they started. There are a couple of these big relationship-based clinics out there. They go by the names ChenMed, Iora Health, Oak Street. There's others as well. But these groups have said, look, we're not going to bill you for everything. We, We don't believe in that model. It's not good for doctoring. We'll take a global lump sum payment from the Medicare Advantage plan or from an employer, and we're going to do direct primary care. We're going to be there for patients, and we're going to prevent disease. We're going to look at their posture and sitting in the workplace and prevent carpal tunnel syndrome. We're going to be available for them to call us in the middle of the night when they think about going to the emergency room for something that can be treated at home, or they can uh, treat it through telemedicine. So we're seeing these relationship-based medicine clinics thrive at a time when traditional primary care medicine is getting hammered and is having trouble recruiting people. People love it. These doctors and nurse practitioners and you name it, we, there's kinesiology majors from college who come right out of college and work as a care navigator at Iora Clinic because Iora hires based on empathy, compassion, and work ethic, not on your degrees and formal training and experience. And so they attract incredible talent and they sit around a conference table in the morning before the patients come in. And for an hour, they talk about who's coming in. What are their social determinants of health? What are their unique circumstances? The front desk staff comment on what the patient said when they called the patient to remind them of their appointment. The navigator and every patient's assigned a navigator could be somebody, you know, out of college who was hired on compassion and empathy and work ethic. And the doctors and nurses train that navigator as to what's important in the patient. And guess what? These bright, smart, creative people, they learn and they do a great job. And by the way, they're hired at a lower price point than than an MD or a nurse practitioner. And it's okay. I can teach a high school student how to do wound care in my surgical clinic. So Iora has basically said, let's let doctors come up with this sort of vision for care and let's allow an entire team to coordinate it and administer that care. And so Iora Health Clinic was very exciting. Chen Med, Oak Street, all the same. Just incredible stories I got a chance to describe in the book, The Price We Pay. In a way, this is very practical common sense. And I know common sense doesn't grow in everyone's garden, but what you're saying, everybody had a grandma who had a social calendar that included visits to the cardiologist. And it's, you know, so a cardiologist is basically her answer to loneliness. Exactly like you you said, and I don't think it necessarily takes a rocket science to realize that she didn't really need to go to the cardiologist. She wanted something to do on Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's that. Do you want to talk about practicing wisely, which I was fascinated by? Yeah, sure. By the way, another great thing about these relationship-based clinics is some of them take on the downstream financial cost of the patients. They assume that downstream financial risk. So guess which cardiologist you think these relationship-based clinics are sending their patients to? 
the one that does a stress test and a nuclear maybe on every single patient, or the ones that have sound judgment and are judicious with the practice of medicine? Are they sending their patients to gastroenterologists that tell every patient you need to have an annual colonoscopy, despite the guidelines suggesting it should be done every 10 years in healthy people? No, they're sending their patients to doctors that are deliver good, appropriate, sound medical care. And what you're seeing is that when you let doctors manage patients and do it with the right alignment, both of the ethics and with the moral backing of an organization with a great organizational culture, and you align the financial incentives, you see doctors doing the right thing and it's beautiful. And it, it, it turns out that these clinics lower the overall healthcare spend uh, for a population by at least 15%. So a real bright spot. Yeah, and I can really see that. And I know this is just one anecdote, but every anecdote is a data point, right? You know, you had my grandmother who's 93-year-old diabetic with an artificial heart valve, and she's going to our cardiologist for a stress test to see if her heart valve is still functioning, in which case he always would say, well, it might have some problems, in which case she'd be at the emergency room eight times after that because she was thinking she was having a heart attack and was going to die. Cases like that are appalling if you know anything about... <laughs> anything pretty much and really costly. So practicing wisely, which is an initiative, maybe is the best way to call it, that you have founded. Yeah. So the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation funded Choosing Wisely several years ago, which I think is just a wonderful project with this incredible leadership from ABIM Foundation and Dan Wolfson. And they've really done a tremendous job creating awareness around the issues of overtreatment. Well, our thought was, can we take things a step further by providing actionable data to individual physicians beyond the sort of public awareness campaign within the medical community and for the public? Can we go a step further? And that, that's really the genesis of Improving Wisely, which was another grant from the same Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to say, let's share individual data with physicians on how they perform. Let's do it in a confidential way, and let's let doctors define what the quality metric is. Let's let doctors create, develop, and endorse how they should be measured on appropriateness. And let's not just look at complication rates, which is what the entire quality industrial complex has been measuring. Let's look at the appropriateness of care. Did that patient need a knee surgery? Should your patients, your senior patients in your practice be on 15 medications when the national average is less than eight. So what we did is a benchmarking program, sending physicians reports on how they perform around an appropriateness measure that was defined by the experts in the specialty. And what we found in some of these projects is that it had a tremendous impact. Take skin cancer surgery, for example. We just published in uh, one of the JAMA journals that when you send doctors who do Mohs surgery, their average number of blocks per case or stages per case, those on the extreme, those who are practicing outside of a boundary of what the peers consider to be reasonable variation, they auto-correct. When they're sent that letter, they auto-correct. It's kind of like when the um, I discovered in the research for the book, The Price We Pay, the San Diego coroner when he found a patient who died of an opioid overdose, he sent a letter to the doctor, the prescribing doctor who was prescribing opioids, and guess what happened to that doctor's prescribing patterns? They plummeted. And it's the simple courtesy of civility and closing the loop 
that have this powerful auto-correction impact on physician behavior, nobody got in trouble, no one got penalized, no one went to jail, there was no expensive consultant. This was simple peer-to-peer benchmarking using sound data that was developed by physicians. The most surgery project we published in JAMA cost $150,000 to run that project nationally. That project has resulted in an $18 million savings to CMS in payouts in the first 1.5 years. So it's had a tremendous impact. People are recognizing that, number one, we need to measure appropriateness of care, not just complication rates. And we can do it by engaging doctors, and they will police their own house and encourage their outliers to auto-correct. I call the outliers those who need help rather than those who are, you know, bad doctors. This has tremendous implications for healthcare. So that's part of this improving wisely, practicing wisely effort. And I can see that as a really sensible alternative to heavy-handed prior auth requirements, you know, because just given that Mohs surgery example, another way to handle that would have been if you're going to do more than two sections, you have to call for prior authorization. Like, that's another way to handle that. What this is effectively doing, every patient is unique and every patient has individual needs. So instead of micromanaging, let's just look at the practice pattern as a whole. You know, as you said, it enables each individual provider to police themselves or to know what good looks like relative to appropriate care, which, you know, is not maybe not is necessarily something that you know, in the absence of seeing other doctors and how they practice. Yeah. What if we could gold card physicians? Your practice patterns represent a pattern that's appropriate. You do well on the appropriateness measures. And because of that, you're not going to have to get pre-authorization for your patients. You're not going to have to do a peer-to-peer or have an insurance company tell you what you can or can't do. And that means you have liberty to practice the art of medicine. What if we start gold carding physicians to give them the freedom to practice medicine as they see fit? I mean, after all, isn't medicine a science of tailoring treatment to an individual's goals and needs? Isn't it an art form? In many areas of medicine, it is. So that's the exciting thing going on right now in healthcare, the talk about appropriateness, the ability of physicians to come up with new measures of appropriateness and sort of a mass effort to create true competition in healthcare by creating transparency, not just around price, but also around quality. And I believe once we have price transparency, it will usher in quality transparency with much more speed and rigor than we've ever seen. Marty, is there anything that I have neglected to ask you that you feel would be important to mention? I mean, I can tell you a little anecdote here that I love being a surgeon. And being a doctor, I think, is the greatest profession in the world. To have a patient tell you things they wouldn't tell their own spouse within seconds of meeting you just because you're the doctor, it's an incredible public trust. Or they'll trust you to put a knife to their skin within a minute of meeting you because of heritage of medicine and the public trust. It's an incredible profession. Doctoring, being a nurse, respiratory therapy, you name it. It's an incredible profession. And the patients sometimes don't know how to navigate the system. I've got patients who show up in my office and I'll ask them, how did you decide to come to Johns Hopkins? And I'm thinking they must know that we do more pancreas surgery than any hospital in the world. And they'll say something like, well, the parking here was really 
good. So that's why I decided to come here. And you realize people are not shopping on value. Employers are not shopping on value. Instead, healthcare has competition now, but it's competing at the level of parking and billboards and NFL ads. We should be competing based on price and quality. People are willing to pay for quality, but they just want honesty with quality metrics and with pricing information. So I think we're about to see an unleashing of more competition in healthcare that's for the good. It's badly needed. Dr. Marty McCary, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Great to be with you, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.